Hello and welcome to this, the second Blackwell podcast of 2012. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is writer and journalist Philip Alterman. Philip, who's an editor on The Guardian, spent the first half of his life in Germany, before coming to England in his mid-teens. His first book, Keeping Up with the Germans, is in part a memoir in which he turns his wry gaze on both his old and new homelands. It's also an alternative modern history of Anglo-German encounters, which embraces the sports field much more than the battlefield. In Keeping Up with the Germans, you'll discover why British bathrooms cause Germans such bewilderment, and why our food leaves them feeling underwhelmed and undernourished. You'll also find out what happened when former Chancellor Cole served Margaret Thatcher sausage and boiled potato wrapped in pig intestines, and read about a whole host of other Anglo-German encounters, dialogues, and, yes, mutual misunderstandings throughout the history of our two nations. When we met at the Guardian offices, I began by asking Philip how he came to be here in the first place. In 1996, my parents one evening broke me the news that uh, my, my father had been offered a, a job in the uh, London office of his uh, his company and that we would effectively be moving to London for, well, for, for a couple of years. And it, it was a possibility that I might just do a year abroad, which is something that Germans do quite a lot. You know, I was um, I was 16 at, at the time. Uh, and so after some to and froing, we decided to to give it a go, and uh, so um, we moved uh, to London in 1997. And after a sort of difficult first year, which is what the book is to an extent about. I mean, half of the book is is a sort of my story of of being German in uh, England for a year. After a difficult first year, I actually really started to like it, and I somehow got stuck. And um, my parents have since moved moved back, and. Um, uh, I've been here ever since, and I'm now you know, married and working here. And um, so, <laughs> and I suppose I suppose you came at quite a quite a critical age because if you were much younger, I suppose you'd have assimilated entirely and and probably shed your, a lot of your German identity. If you'd been older, you probably wouldn't have shed it at all. But you were you were sort of a you know, mid-teens, which is a, yeah. a real really important stage in sort of discovering what kind of person you are. Yeah, I think I think um, you. I was very. Well, insecure <laughs> as teenagers are, and you're not settled as a as a as a person at that point in time. And in in many ways, it makes it a lot easier to just say, okay, you know, what I am, that German self, is actually quite easy to just shed that skin and just put on that sort of English duffel coat and try and be as English as possible. And I think that made it easier. I mean, if I had come over and I was 18, it would have been a lot a lot harder. But it um it sort of means that quite a lot of things in me I'm you know I'm constantly confused about what the sort of opinions I have and, and the things I do whether they're shaped by my time in, in Britain or in time in Germany I'm sort of coming up you know in two years time I will have been you know, exactly half my life in, in one country and half in, in the other and it's going to get even more confusing then. Yeah. So, so you, you, you go to, it starts attending an English school and you become known as German Phil. I mean, what, 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 kind of, um, what kind of ideas of Germany did you feel were being sort of projected onto you? Uh, I mean, one of the things that Germans always say about the English is that, you know, the English are obsessed with the Second World War and that every English person thinks that every German person is a Nazi. To an extent, that's true. I mean, that does that, that does exist, and there is a sort of heavy emphasis on on the national socialist era in 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 the English curriculum. 
but I mean, I have to say, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really meet that much hostility. That wasn't the sort of main thing. I mean, I, it, there were in a way more subtle than that. I think the prejudices that I got. I mean, one of this is that you know Germans don't have a sense of humour. That Germans are robotic. You know, it's like that that joke, which is that the German boy who never says anything until he's fifteen, and then one day his mother. So he says, Maza, I, uh, why did you not change the sheets? And she said, why didn't you say anything before? Because uh, 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 until now, everything has been satisfactory. <laughs> you know, it's a sort of, uh, you know, robotic German. I mean, that's culturally, I think, a strong type that people expect. And I sort of think, I mean, football, arrogance was actually another character trait that people associated with Germans when in the 90s, particularly. And I think that had to do, you know, that has, and may has, very little to do with with the war, and I think we over overemphasize the the sort of the way the war still shapes the, those relations. I mean, I think it's got, all got to do with the economy. And in the nineties, you had all these big German companies, uh, you know, buying uh, up British companies like Rover, for example, and you know that you'd have these sort of rich Germans coming to coming to London, I think, or to England in general. I think that was much more influential in, in shaping shaping the sort of national um, cliches. I thought it was really fascinating what you said about both your own attempts to get to grips with the subtleties of the English language and how it's used, and also the contrast you made with your own peers in mm. the English the English students in school, who were very verbally quick and mm. clever and sharp, mm. but you say were very um, reticent. They fell silent when um, abstract ideas, big ideas came up, and I thought it was an interesting idea and something that, that perhaps points to different casts of mind between the two nations. Yeah, I mean, it just struck me that that is uh, a major cultural difference. It doesn't mean that it's uh, it can't change over time, but it, I think there is a thing in German history which is known as the Sprachkrise, which is the crisis of language, you know, and some people might say that's just something that happened in, in literature and to poetry in the 19, uh, you know, early 20th century. But I think there's a sort of a sense of feeling uncomfortable in with language and that somehow there were ideas that you couldn't express through language and that these ideas existed outside language i mean you know and you can you know that's wittgenstein you know there's big philosophy there but i think it trickles down that's the, to to the way people talk on, on an everyday basis so english people always struck me as very confident with with language you know language was was their, their element whereas once it came to the more sort of abstract big ideas it would you could quite easily as a schoolboy be accused of being you know the boffin that you know being pretentious you know which was, was very it's a very english sort of criticism you know i think uh, you have a lot of newspapers in, in germany that, that are just pretentious you know, and no one really almost criticized them for being being so uh, so so that's yeah i mean that's something that i sort of always found quite interesting and i guess i found it quite easy even though my i wasn't that verbally dexterous as a as a schoolboy, I was in a way more confident about ideas than than my than my peers in a, in a strange way. And that's slightly blowing blow my own trumpet. Let's not say that I'm a brilliant philosopher, but I think that's just the way you sort of as a, as a 16 year old I, I thought. Now, besides being about your own and your family's encounter with England, the book is also about encounters in the past mm. between German culture mm. and English culture. So how did you come up with the, the sequence of encounters that, that run through the book? Mm. I thought, OK, I have, I have this, there was this narrative of, of you know, a memoir of someone coming, a teenager <laughs> coming to 
England. And I thought that's not quite quite enough. So I wanted to tell a little bit about the history of the two countries. And I th it just struck me that there's a similar narrative actually about a country, Germany, which is a bit of a teenager in the 19th century, at the time that England just feels to Germans just a lot more grown up. It has democracy, it has free freedom of speech, it has industry. And so this sort of narrative of growing up in relation to another country or uh, to people around you just struck me there's an interesting parallel to, to work with. I mean, ever since I've, I've lived here, I've, I've been sort of fascinated with, you know, anecdotes of, of historical meetings of, I mean, not, not particularly, they don't have to be important meetings. Some of them, I mean, some of them feel like important meetings, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Helmut Kohl, but the ones I enjoyed most actually and I found most interesting were often more sort of private meetings between just unusual people and that, that sort of t told you something about the differences between the two countries and the similarities so um, you know for example something like the German Dada artist Kurt Schwitters coming to England during the Second World War you know I mean it's just an interesting story that he as someone who was a leading artist in Germany couldn't find anyone who understood what he was doing here and really you know lived in poverty even though the art that he produced then was would go on to really be very influential and look much like what we you know associate with pop art and with you know punk art uh, but the only person he could somehow really engage with wasn't an artist but a gardener and this just, so I mean that wasn't an important meeting but in many it just tells you quite a lot about actually yeah, I guess the, the similarities that we might have somewhere uh, beneath the surface after, after all. Yeah, because, I mean, sometimes there are cultural misunderstandings, aren't there? And the Helmut Kohl Thatcher meeting, you know, they, they don't really see eye to eye at all. And he was trying to impress her and show a particular side of himself and that didn't work. But they're not all about misunderstandings. There are, there are possibilities yeah. for, for, yeah. The, for the meetings of minds, aren't there? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think generally there's a very boring book to be written only about the things that we have in common. And I think broadly we have a lot in common you could, by, by the same token, you can say that for two countries that are actually geographically really quite close, there are quite fundamental differences and thus misunderstandings. The misunderstandings are a bit more fun to write about than, than the sort of people getting on. But at the same time, I guess, particularly the areas where we tend to think we are very different and where there's friction between the countries, I think it's interesting to sort of look a bit more closely. I mean, football is an example where you know, we will forever think that that's the point where England and Germany come to a crunch and produces a lot of bad feelings, um, you know, penalty shootouts and people doing offensive things on the pitch and saying offensive things afterwards. But actually, if you step back and, and look at it, it's a beautiful story of uh, two countries really dedicating and finding something in a, in a type of sport. And, uh, and I think in Germany, there's, you know, there's sort of respect for the for the tradition of the sport, which was until the 1920s was was considered a very, very English thing that was, you know, it was called the English disease or, you know, it was called foot hooliganism at one point. Uh, there's quite a lot of respect for, for, for that. And, and, and in many ways, it, it's more, I, t I think of it's a beautiful example of it's produced a lot more similarities and a lot more actually it can be a vehicle for diplomacy. I mean, that, that's why I, rather than writing about the sort of famous, you know, 1966 World Cup or uh, 1990 penalty shootouts. I thought um, I came across this 1977 European Cup final, where which ended not only with two players sort of starting a friendship, but also 
uh, a fan friendship between uh, Liverpool and Mönchengladbach fans who, um, who to this day, once a year, organise a friendship trip where they visit each other. And, you know, I think we sort of overlook that for the, for the sake of the, the headlines, but, but there's a beautiful story there actually about um, understanding rather than misunderstanding. But you mentioned penalty shootouts, and when it comes to them, it seems that two countries view them in a completely different way. Can you can you just sort of summarise what you what you think marks that um, disparity? I mean, there are lots of theories about why <laughs> about why Germany keeps on winning at penalty shootouts. But the statistics are really remarkable that Germany is one of the best countries when it comes to just the, the figures for scoring penalties at penalty shooter and England is just one of the world's con- world's worst countries at, at that which is you know remarkable I guess one thing it's sort of in the name so I mean uh, that doesn't explain everything but there's a hint of, of that so it's uh, the fact that it's penalties uh, to me has an overtone of uh, you know this you haven't managed to score until this point so this is a bit of a punishment I guess it has a negative overtone in, Ge- in German, it's called Elf Meter, which is, just says 11 meters. It's, it's very prosaic in comparison. It just says, okay, just 11 meters, just, just you know, just, uh, just score the goal. So there's a, there's a sort of different difference there. But I found it quite interesting going through press reports on, on all the penalty shootouts that England lost. The sort of narrative there that keeps on popping up is, is that it's you know, a penalty. It's a game of chance. It's pure luck which I've never heard in, in Germany. I think it's very much considered part of the game and part of, it's another sort of discipline within the game to be mastered. And there is a heavy emphasis on control in German sport. And if you, if you broaden it out, you know, that that's partly comes from the fact that Germany, before it embraced English-style sports, it was very much gymnastics, which, which were considered a, the German type of exercise, and which is all about control it's all about monitoring every type of the, the process so you know that's German football also at its worst is completely controlled no fun no adventure but on the other hand English sport I guess has a tendency to constantly increase the element of, of chance in it I mean there's a I mean I've played in both countries you know not professionally but uh, on amateur level and I always remembered sort of one of my first games of, of someone in my team saying to me you know Sometimes I just I just don't understand how it acts. And he was a really good player. He, I don't understand how the ball ends up in goal. It just seems like so, there's so many random factors at play. So I think English sport has always been more willing to to accept the element of chance in sport, whereas German football has tried to the sport has tried to deny it. And in penalties, I guess that those two mentalities come to a clash uh, to Germany's advantage. I thought it was interesting what you wrote about the, the different way that teams have in England of communicating with each other and how you, that seemed sort of strange to you at first and then you became part of it. What, what, did you, what did you discover coming to that as an outsider? After a year at, a German, at, at, a, at an English um, school, I'd, you know, I found it quite hard to essentially make friends and that was really important to me. I mean, that's, you know, why I, I wanted to, <laughs> that's what would have made me stay was making friends and it, through language that was just hard because I felt I was always a step behind. And I wasn't particularly into football, but I'd never really played for a proper team before. But I sort of joined a football uh, team at my school, and even though it wasn't a particularly good team, I really f- sort of discovered football as a as a model of um, socialisation in a way. And language is a, is a huge part of that. And I've always found since that when I've played with English teams against German teams, which I've done, that English teams talk 
a lot more. I mean, they shout a lot more, and sometimes it can look like desperation and panic. But there's a sort of there's a nice element that you become part of the team, and teamwork is you know it, it teaches you to to, to sort of um, not be selfish. I mean, I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing about about team sports uh, that we sort of uh, f- forget. But I guess it's the other element that, uh, what we talked about before that um, the sort of it teaches you language. I mean, it teaches you the English reliance on, 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 on language as, as the glue for everything. And, and my sort of that was my moment when, when I eventually scored for that team that I, d- I decided to stay in, in, in England after all. When you go back to Germany now, do you see it through bifocal eyes? Are you, do you, have, you, have you become at least part English in your perceptions? Yeah, I think the first time I realised that was not actually that long after I'd, I'd moved to um, England. It was when I played football with some German friends and uh, I sort of missed a shot and I just said, oh, fuck, you know. <laughs> it, just, it just suddenly realised that that wasn't, you know, where did that come from? You know, it was, I was talking, I was sort of thinking in, in English rather than German. But it, it, it is strange when I go back now, I sort of, um, I get very defensive of uh, of England. I mean... Germans are very snobbish about um, English food still, which I think is sort of ironic given that Germany is hardly famous for its excellent cuisine. I mean, sausages accepted maybe. But um, I think there are, you know, many many ways like the way I think about, I mean, I I tend to make a lot more jokes. (laughs) When I talk to people, I say things, you know, um, I make jokes and I don't, necessarily indicate that I've made jokes which is what Germans don't tend to do they tend to somehow tell you that they've made a joke so that can produce a lot of confusion when I talk to uh, friends and, 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 and family when I, when I go back but it's um, yeah I mean it's, it's increasingly complicated <laughs> but it, you know interesting <laughs> Philip Altermann Keeping Up With The Germans is available now in paperback you can find out more about it as well as several million other titles by visiting blackwell.co.uk. You'll also find a podcast archive there with over 150 author interviews by clicking the podcast tab on the home page. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Online Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.